way before the U.S. had its pivot to Asia, Russian czars have been doing this move for hundreds of years. We shall be masters. Russian pivots to East Asia from Peter the Great to Putin is Chris Meller, tough professor and four-time China Talk guest, joins the show to discuss his new book exploring how Russian leaders have conceptualized, expanded, and failed to expand eastward. Co-hosting with us is Camille Gallet. I'm a historian and independent researcher. From mid-September to the end of December, I'll be doing a fellowship at Canon Institute, D.C. So if by any chance you have a room or apartment to rent in D.C. or nearby, I'd be really grateful if you contact me. Awesome. Uh, trying to talk as uh, DC Craigslist is, is, I think, the final form of trying to talk. Um, uh, Camille also was a classmate of mine at uh, Peking University and Yenching Academy way back in the day. Camille and Chris, welcome to the show. What were the factors which over the centuries made it really difficult to realize these grand aims? Well, if, if you want to get from Moscow to Vladivostok today, uh, you get on a plane and fly for around eight hours. So it's far easier to get to London or to get to Paris than it is to Vladivostok. And that's that's with air travel. Rewind the clock 150 years before there were trains uh, and really before there were really well-organized roads across uh, a big chunk of Siberia and the Far East. It was a months-long journey to get from uh, the center of Russia to the Far East. And that really has a huge implication if you're trying, A, to set up trade routes, because trade has to take place via what rivers there are, and there aren't a lot of rivers that flow from east to west in Siberia and the Far East, or it takes place via camel caravan over the Gobi Desert. Uh, and so even late into the 19th century, logistical uh, questions were absolutely crucially important when you're talking about setting up trade or, or certainly moving troops in, in a, a military campaign in the Far East. So in contrast to Russian military operations in the 19th century in Europe, where you'd regularly have armies of tens of thousands of troops marching around, in the Far East, the numbers were always an order of magnitude smaller simply because you couldn't get people there. And if you got them there, you couldn't equip them with uh, with the supplies they needed. So it was always a huge challenge just to exercise the state's power in the region. I want to start with Alaska, Hawaii, and California, which are not, you know, when you first think of Russian expansion, uh, where your head goes, maybe folks like remember in AP history that America bought Alaska from Russia at some point. Um, but if you drive up Route 1, um, you will hit this Russian fort, which Chris, as you relate, uh, had some real dreamers behind it, but ultimately was like a pretty dramatic and disastrous failure. So what was driving the uh, Russian expansion to North America, and how did it end up panning out? The initial factor pulling Russia into North America was the fur trade, which today we don't think much about the fur trade because it's not popular to buy uh, fur coats. But in the in the 18th and 19th century, it was very popular to buy fur coats. And uh, China in particular was a huge consumer of fur. And the place you'd get fur was from uh, the waters of the North Pacific, both in contemporary Russia and the islands in the Pacific, but also across the Bering Straits in Alaska. And so Russian fur traders were pulled into Alaska in large part because they uh, initially drove uh, a substantial portion of the, the fur-bearing animals in today's Russian waters to uh, levels near extinction. So they had to find new areas of fur, and Alaska was a natural place to go. But once you arrive in Alaska, uh, you face the dilemma of how do you feed yourself? Because you can't grow a lot of food in Alaska. 
climate's not very hospitable, and it's really, really hard to ship food from Moscow to Alaska. So the, the Russians in Alaska uh, faced huge problems of scurvy from the early stages, and they were immediately thinking about the Pacific as, as the answer because the furs that they were collecting were being shipped to China. And so China was already a central feature in Russian thinking about Alaska, which when you think about it geographically doesn't necessarily make that much sense. But when you think about trade patterns – Actually, it starts to to become more significant. And then when you look at how do the winds make sailing uh, when you leave Alaska, there's a pretty steady wind uh, in the summer months that takes sailing ships from Alaska right down the California coast and then to Hawaii. And so suddenly you see because of the weather patterns, actually, there's a whole lot that connects Alaska, Russia, California, and Hawaii in the days when people were uh, relying on wind rather than steam to to power their, their ship. Yeah, actually, I would say just as a citizen of Russia, it just sounds absolutely crazy for me that Alaska, Hawaii, California, all this Eastern Pacific expansion actually came earlier than Vladivostok. That's absolutely mind-blowing. And I believe most of Russian population would be shocked if they thought about that. Because technically, from modern point of view, because in Russia, most of us tend to regard Russia as a kind of continental empire, especially with all these Dugin theories, kind of heartland. And like Russia is something completely not telesocratic. But this specific expansion, it sounds very, very telesocratic. Yeah, and if you think about how Russia expanded across Siberia and the Arctic, actually it was expanding largely via maritime patterns by sailing through the Arctic Ocean and the rivers of Siberia because it was far easier to, to move over, over water than over land. And so you do have this... Um, strange uh, result, which is that this great land empire was largely explored and settled by maritime routes in the 18th and, and 19th centuries, really into the 20th century. The patterns of settlement in, in the Far East and Siberia were determined by the access to water. It's a great observation, because when Russia conquered my homeland, uh, like Kazanhainate, a river was really the backbone of expansion. All the Tatar population was expelled from the river, Russians settled by the river, and though technically conquest happened in mid-16th century, until mid-17th, the control didn't really extend maybe like 20, 30 kilometers from the river, really. So like Europeans in North America, for a very long time, they were like attached to the coast, in the same way in Russians to the Volga, and they tried, they were anxious to go too far from it. Well, I, I guess that disproves the old notion about there being you know, land and, and maritime empires or continental and maritime empires. There are really just maybe ocean-going empires and river-going empires, and those are the two boundaries that we ought to think about. Before we stray too far from California, I do want you to tell one, uh, one or two stories of these um, uh, Russian-like pathetic dreamers who ended up basically just getting steamrolled by Americans who, I guess, had better supply lines and whatnot. But what was their pitch to the various czars and why did they end up keep getting rejected in their appeals for, for more money and resources? Well, yeah, I think the best character is, is Nikolai Rosano, but I don't think he's pathetic, Jordan. I think he's a fascinating dreamer. Pa pathos, who certainly, pathos, Chris. <laughs> perhaps. He certainly didn't have the supply lines, but Nikolai Rosano was, he had close ties to the, the, the Russian company that, that governed Alaska. And so he had dreams of uh, using Alaska as a springboard to this broader Pacific empire. And he realized that the key problem Alaska faced as a colony was finding a source of food. And so he looked on the map and saw California to the south, which was at the time in the early 1800s still ruled by the Spanish. 
and the Spanish were in the process of, of losing their empire in the Western Hemisphere. And so he sailed into uh, San Francisco Bay in the early 1800s and tried to convince uh, the Californians, uh, the Spanish who were living there, to trade with him. Uh, and he eventually uh, fell in love by one account or made a tactical marriage by another account with the uh, daughter of the head of the Spanish colony there and tried to use this marriage as uh, a way to kick off a, a commercial and a trade relationship with Spanish California. And there were, there were two problems. One was that the Spanish government didn't allow any trade in and out in California. And the second problem was that his fiance was Catholic and he was, of course, Orthodox. So they needed the Pope's approval for the marriage. So he had to go he all the way back. So the freaking Pope. So, so he, he set off across the... the so and he dies in a very tragic way, too. He, he fell off his horse, which is, uh, given the status of roads in Siberia, perhaps not surprising. But it was a, a dangerous journey, even for someone like Rizanov, who was young and in, in good health and had a lot to look forward to had he made it all the way to, to the Pope. You know, those, those 15-year-old Spanish conquistadoras, always uh, worth cross-Siberian trips to get a marriage proposal through. Um, Camille, take us away from this. So basically, I think one of your ideas was that Russian Empire was really impulsive. So much of expansion, much of policy was motivated by personal impulse of this or that administrator or general or governor or whatever. So um, I think there are some parallels. For example, one great author who wrote The Ottoman Age of Exploration, he noted the same about Ottoman Empire. So basically that the entire endeavor in Indian Ocean, it's entirely the idea of uh, Mehmet Pasha Sokolovich. He died, Ottoman Indian Empire died because nobody cared. So I think there is something in common. Some uh, empires are really based on personal motivation. So the first question is, how could you command that? And second, what surprises me, what puzzles me, is how China managed to pursue the Hanjian policy. So basically, cutting the population of the maritime communications for centuries, throughout many emperors, and even throughout dynasties. So how this continuity was even possible. And it really strikes me uh, in comparison with very um, idiosyncratic, I would say, Russian policy. Well, I, th I think you're right about the impulsiveness of, of Russian empire building in, in Asia, and that you do have this these periods of deep engagement coupled by periods of disinterest that happen on a seemingly once a generation basis. Someone gets the idea of, hey, let's let's try to do something in Asia, and then they try it and, and lose interest. I, I think on, on the Russian relations with China, though, I was also struck by the variations on Chinese policy as well. When you look at the territories where Russia and China both have had historic interests in in Manchuria, in in Xinjiang, and Mongolia. I think you know you go back the past two hundred years or so of or three hundred years of Chinese history from the Qing to the uh, the PRC period. You use I think see fluctuations there as well in terms of how much do people actually care about these regions. Manchuria is a great example. You know now of course no one in China would would ever admit that Manchuria isn't a, a central part of the Dongbei isn't a central part of the Chinese state. But of course you just need to rewind the clock. You know less than a hundred years when Dongbei was governed by warlords, basically independently of the Chinese state, and everyone thought that was a sort of a normal a normal way of managing the relationship. So I th I think too in China there's you know we hear these stories about the unitariness of the Chinese state and the historic interests yada yada. But when you actually start digging deeper, I'm struck by the the fluctuations in interest in terms of uh, control over peripheral territories there too. Regarding Manchuria and the clash between Russia and China, I recently read a very fun anecdote which I can't not to share. So basically, when in 1670s, Russia and Qing Empire were conducting negotiations, 
At first, they're going well for Russia because Chinese, well, Manchus, to be honest, they're not sure really who they're dealing with. And Russians were taking very bold, quite aggressive positions. And Manchus thought maybe it's, maybe it's reasonable. But then something happened. One of translators of Russian embassy, who was a Crimean Tatar who accepted Christianity and switched to Moscovite service, he switched to, say, to Chinese, to the Qing. And he told them a lot about Russia. And the most important thing was Russia is paying tribute to Bakshi Sarai. Of course, Russia didn't consider this as tribute. Russia considered this just as gifts. We're just sending gifts to Crimean Khan. But for the Qing, it was pretty obvious. Like, you guys are not sovereign. You are tributaries. Like, why the hell are you acting tough? So don't bullshit. It's interesting how all these status details, which sound unimportant today, they're crucial. I think, for understanding the imperial dynamics of back then. Yeah, I think empire building is, even today, but certainly in the past, so much of it is about status assertion. You prove that you're a great power on the world stage by the fact that you can build and maintain an empire. So that's often just as important a goal as any sort of, quote-unquote, real interest that, that you would have in, in the process of building an empire. I think in this respect, empire is much closer, not to the modern state, but it's closer to mafia, to criminal enterprise. Uh, there is one great sociologist of Russian crime, Volkov, and in his book, Violent Entrepreneurs, he gave some interview with a chief bandit of St. Petersburg. And that bandit was telling to interviewer, you can kill me, but you can't get money from me. You never can extort money from me. That was super important, because once you do, you may pay a little, but you are not really cool anymore. Your status decreases. I think modern state doesn't really think this way, but archaic state, Muscovy or Qing Empire really did. It was quite logical and predictable that uh, many visionaries in Russia, they perceived Far East as some sort of new Russia, where the old, like, bigoted, archaic ways can be left aside, and new, modern, some more interesting Russia built. But what I didn't expect at all, what was absolutely shocking to me, that all their ideas, they were not just some abstract academic crap, but they really influenced decision-making. And apparently for imperial elite, for Muravyov or for Nicholas, like 95% of humans of empire, of subjects of empire, were not human at all. So any, like, somewhat intellectual person, any person who can uh, argue, who can make a compelling argument, especially in French, he would be a person that a governor or even an emperor would really talk with. To construct a compelling narrative actually makes you a part, not of elite, but something, someone that elites would hear. That, that's definitely true. That, that's a big difference with today. Yeah, so, so basically in, in, the, uh, in the period when Russia was establishing its control over the, the Far East, what the Russians call the Far East today, the territory between Siberia and the Pacific Ocean, broadly speaking, uh, there was a debate about whether and how Russia should do this because it was a long way off. It wasn't clear what the benefits would be. And, and there was a, a school of thought that emerged out of a very small circle of Russian intellectuals who are today often thought of as, as being sort of proto-liberals in some ways, critics of the czar. You know, we could debate whether that's true, but that's sort of how they're often conceptualized. And out of them emerged a series of briefings that were delivered to the governor of the, the Far Eastern Territory, a guy named Moraviova Mursky, who was told that this would be Russia's Mississippi. And there's an excellent uh, book by a, a great scholar named Mark Basson on this exact concept. And the idea was that just as the United States had steamships traveling up and down the Mississippi and was opening the Louisiana Purchase Territory to all sorts of trade, Russia could do the same thing in its own Far Eastern Territory, just to the north of China, and that you would have 
steamships sailing up and down the Amur River, which would help to establish trade and civilization in this territory. And that if you did that, you would have a new Russia that would be free from the, the dilemmas faced by the old Russia, free from the aristocracy, free from whatever problems you saw in the old Russia, and you'd have a new territory in which to reestablish a new society. So it was sort of empire as utopianism. Uh, and the Far East was, was seen as the canvas on which these uh, Russian intellectuals could paint their image of the new Russia. And from this, we get expansion, we get a Trans-Siberian Railway? Yeah, or maybe another, like, variant, because at least glimpse of Russian intellectual debates right now, one of hot topics, I would say, it's kind of economic and geographic fate of Russia. Because right now, many Russians, they're pessimistic about Russian geography, that kind of it's bad, because um, we are so landlocked, we are so far away from the ocean, which makes communication expensive and which basically makes us poor. And that's sad. What is interesting, that some of arguments which are not articulated by Russian ruling class, but I think are somewhat implied, that we should move to the coast. It's clear in case of Leningrad and Krasnodar. So these two points are really growing and growing naturally. So um, there are a lot of investments, government, private investments going to St. Petersburg and Krasnodar, like to two of Russian seas. But to the Far East, to the Vladivostok, it's almost entirely government initiated. So it looks, but it's now pronounced explicitly, but it looks like the idea of Putin's regime is that we should invest as much, as much resources to these three points, Baltic, Black Sea, and Pacific, as possible. Because these are points for potential growth, while Omsk or Kurgan are not because it's too far from the sea. Of course, telling this publicly it's impossible because it will be so unpopular in continental Russia. But why it's interesting, because if we see if this assumption is correct, if they are really thinking this way, it's really a break away from old imperial tradition, from the tradition of Nesselroda, for example, who explicitly didn't want to rush to go to Pacific that Siberia should be landlocked, shouldn't have access to the sea, and that's great, because convicts can't escape. He actually quote, he actually told that Siberia is our great sack where we put all the unruly elements and they should stay there. We don't have to go to Pacific because then they can escape. And you know what? He was right. He's 100% right. Because when, when Russia expanded to Pacific, Bakunin used this chance to escape. So in order to guard unruly elements... We should stay away from the sea. You think about the wars that, that Russia has gotten involved in in the 20th century since taking the Pacific coast. And, you know, some of them have went well, but others have gone disastrously wrong. And so it's an interesting question to ask. Would Russia be more secure today if it didn't have the Pacific coast and had a big barrier in Siberia that separated it from uh, other countries in the Pacific region? That's actually, I think, is one of interesting conceptual implications of your book, that Pacific is a graveyard of Russian empires. It was a graveyard of Russian Empire, whose backbone was broken in Russian-Japanese war. And it was a graveyard of Soviet Empire, who just invested so much cash in conflict with Beijing, that it basically went bankrupt. So maybe there is a clear pattern of overextension of imperial supply lines. And maybe there is some parallel with Spanish road, like from Mediterranean to Flanders, that such overextended supply lines just so costly that it will bankrupt an empire. Well, certainly you look at the, the period over the past 30 years since uh, a lot of the Soviet-era subsidies to the Far East have been reduced to a certain extent, and, and we've seen a, 
a huge shift of the population out of out of the Far East, especially in the 1990s, to to parts of southern and and, and western Russia. So as a sign that the population, although it's slowed in recent years, but the sign that the population would prefer to live in the more economically productive regions of the country. So probably a, another data point in, in support of that thesis, Camille. So it's interesting, especially in case with Moravyovamursky, that expansion to Far East was initiative of a local official who basically was breaking or ignoring instructions of imperial center. It's interesting because initial expansion to Siberia followed the same pattern with Stroganov merchants initiating expansion uh, against the wishes of Ivan the Terrible. So it's interesting that maybe it is a general pattern in building many colonial empires. Like, I don't remember who British historians noted that British Raj was mostly built, especially on initial stages, against the instructions of London. I think that's right, Camille. And, and if you think about the logistics, especially for pre-20th century empires, when you you know were talking with your commanders in the field by sending them messages that would take months to be delivered, or at times a year to be delivered, and when the Russians wanted to send a message from St. Petersburg, the capital of the Tsarist Empire, to Alaska, they would often sail it around South America, through the Atlantic, around South America, and up to Alaska. So, you know, it wasn't the most effective command and control structure. And although things have gotten better in, in recent decades, I still think there's plenty of reason to expect that there's gaps between what the Kremlin uh, wants and what commanders on the ground are doing. And I think you're right to say also that Russia is not unique in this regard, that when you look a lot of empires in general, but especially pre-20th century empires, when they weren't communicating via telegraph lines or, or more advanced technologies, there was a ton of scope left to commanders on the ground, which creates risk and opportunity. And it's, you know, there's, I think, a a way that empires will try to think and and find the optimal amount of scope to give the commander on the ground, because you don't want perfect command and control defined as all decisions being made in the center. You want to give the the commanders leeway to decide in in, in certain ways. And certainly the Russian Empire gave a fair amount of, of leeway for commanders, especially in places like the Far East, where the stakes weren't always that high. And so it was, it was okay to, to see what your commanders could come up with if you gave them more free reign. So your point is that improvement of communications is somewhat of a liability, and we should compensate it somehow institutionally. Well, certainly there were uh, institutional ways to compensate in in the past when communications were less bad, which which I think you, you saw plenty of. I mean, why didn't this guy just forge a letter from the Pope? That's really what I'm, I don't understand. So how did Russia sort of bang against Qing China? What were some of the flashpoints? What was the overall thesis and how did it end up end up turning out? The Russians had relations with the Qing in, in various ways, uh, dating back a couple hundred years, but it was really in the 19th century when the Russian Empire started to have a real footprint in the territory of the Russian Far East and also um, along the border of contemporary Xinjiang. Uh, and so there are two different ways that Russia began really seriously to interact with the Qing. One was by taking the territory that's now the Russian Far East, Russia took territory that the Qing thought was its own territory. Uh, and so this is kind of a sore point to this day, that the land around Vladivostok, for example, it, it seems like there's pretty good evidence that uh, the Qing didn't really have good control over it, but they thought it was their own. And so um, and so th- this was a, a thing that the Qing didn't like. And it was happening right around the time that China was facing more and more pressure from other European powers, the British and the French. And so there's actually Actually, uh, we often forget in, in our contemporary retelling of, of the, opi- the Second Opium War, but it, it coincided with uh, Russia's uh, kind of final assertion of, of authority over 
the Russian Far East. And although our, our narrative and China's narrative today about the, the sacking of, of Beijing at the time is a, a story of kind of the British and the French misbehaving, you know, the Russians were there too, actually, which which is, I think, something that, that's important not to forget, both because it puts the Russians there as in, imperial powers pushing against China, but also because the Russians were looking at the British marching on Beijing saying, hey, wait a minute, uh, this is kind of worrisome. What if the British actually get there first and lock us out somehow or even turn China into a, a, a power that has to be subsidiary to the British? So there was a, a broader sense of imperial geopolitics going on there. And as Russia expanded its influence in Manchuria over the course of the 19th century, and Manchuria became basically a colony of Russia by the end of the 1800s, the Qing had to more or less accept it. And so you had uh, the policy of, of Li Hongzhang and others in the late Qing basically more or less welcoming the Russians in as the least bad option that the Chinese faced. I do want to talk a little bit about Xinjiang because it was not baked in that it would end up under Beijing's control. How were very successive uh, Russian governments thinking about to what extent they actually wanted that part of the planet? Yeah, if you think about how Russia expanded its influence into the territory we today call Central Asia, so the non-Chinese portions of Central Asia, it was really a process that accelerated in the middle of the 19th century. And like in the Far East, it was a process that was driven as much by generals on the ground as it was by sort of a, a grand strategy in St. Petersburg. It, it wasn't the case that Russia kind of put a stamp on a policy document that said, we must take over Central Asia. It was rather a series of steps that ended up with Russia uh, annexing most of, of Central Asia. And as part of that process, Xinjiang was always on the table as a place Russia might push into. And indeed, by the middle of the 18th century, Russia had consulates in a number of cities in uh, in what I'll call Qing Xinjiang from, from Kashgar and others, which could have just been consulates or they could have been beachheads for further imperial expansion. Uh, and it wasn't clear at the time what they would be. And when you think of logistics at the time, uh, although it was a very long way from Moscow to, uh, say, Kashgar or, or Moscow to uh, Urumqi, it was also a really long way to Beijing. So it, w it wasn't at all clear that the Russians had worse logistics in terms of supply lines than the Qing did. And of course, the Qing Empire in the 19th century faced, especially the late 19th century, faced a series of crises, the Taiping Rebellion, uh, rebellions in Yunnan, the various wars with the Europeans. And so if you were going to cut off uh, one piece of Qing Empire territory that was low value uh, and hard to control, you know, Xinjiang probably would have been it. Uh, and indeed, by the end of the 19th century, you know, I think you could argue that Qing control over Xinjiang had, had really... Um, had really dissipated relative to what it had been 100 years earlier. And, and there were a number of Russians who said, well, you know, that Chinese control is declining, Russian influence in the region writ large is rising, why not grab that too? But it seems that Russia is consistently refusing to expand to Xinjiang, refusing in imperial times, refusing in Stalin's era. So it's really unusual for me that Russia is mm, refusing to annex something when there is clearly a chance. Yeah, I think it, it has to go back to the fact that everyone agreed that Xinjiang was Chinese territory. Whereas if you were going to annex, you know, Buhara or annex the Khanate of Kokand right across the border, uh, no one is going to get too angry at you. But if you're going to grab uh, Xinjiang, that would mean the risk of a war with China. Uh, and there was a, a head of the Russian general staff at the, at the time in the uh, 1870s who had to plan for a, a war with China. And he said, you know, we're really like a comet. We, we have Russia. We've got a core in Europe and this long tail that stretches all the way across 
the Eurasian continent, and China could strike at any different points uh, on the on the tail of the comet and sever our supply lines. And so that really was a, a constant fear that even though the Qing was a, a weak military power, which it was, it was strong enough to cause a real problem for Russia if they eventually went to war, and the downside wasn't worth uh, whatever upside, if any, there would have been from actually grabbing Xinjiang. Yeah, but I think that at that period, it was potentially more realistic for Russia because Xinjiang, as well as most of outskirts, they were not really considered parts of China proper. They were governed differently. And it's interesting that many of Chinese nationalists in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, they didn't want to keep these places as parts of China. Like Liang Qihao, he believed that all these they should all go their own way. It's also interesting how this idea of Qing Empire, of the territorial unity of Qing Empire, it somehow transformed to the idea of territorial unity of Chinese People's Republic, which uh, now retrospectively sounds obvious, but it wasn't obvious back then. So maybe the question, maybe the way to phrase the question is, why didn't Xinjiang become like Mongolia? You know, today Mongolia separate country, um, but it wasn't obvious that it would end up a separate country. Yes, because Russia responded to Mongolian aristocrats who wanted to separate. I think that's right, but I think Russia responded because there was a much clearer sense of, you know, in in Xinjiang, there was always, going back to the 19th century, huge divisions internally as to as to what was wanted by the quote-unquote people of Xinjiang, which is to say that all of the Russian analysis in the 19th century about Xinjiang politics involved different groups, different ethnic groups, different religious groups. Uh, and there was a sense from the beginning that there was, there was no unified uh, view. It wouldn't be easy to say, we're going to grab Xinjiang and the, the populace will, will welcome this, will welcome independence from China. Instead, the opposite. When Russia was most engaged in uh, Xinjiang, which was in the 1860s, 1870s, during the Yaka Beg Rebellion, uh, that was a, a time in which you know Xinjiang faced all sorts of internal conflicts between different regions, different religious groups different militias, etc. Uh, so it, it didn't seem like an easy place to, to govern. And there wasn't one representative of, of Xinjiang that could go to Russia and say, please help us become independent, because it was always obvious that Xinjiang itself was never unified under uh, one, one kind of political identity. So if such person existed, Xinjiang would now probably be East Turkestani Republic like Kyrgyzstan. Or- well, you know, the, the funny thing is that, you know, Yakubeg, when he ruled a big chunk of Xinjiang for uh, about a decade in the in the 1870s, um, you know, he had really good relations with, or at least a very, very complex relations and sophisticated relations with Russia. He had a, a, a skilled diplomat in St. Petersburg. He had lines of communication open with the Russian general staff and the defense ministry. So if, if the Russians had thought he was a credible ruler of Xinjiang for the long run, they would have gladly, I think, supported his efforts. But, but they were just as um, convinced that he was volatile, that he was uh, violent, that he was uh, incapable of governing, as they were optimistic that he was going to pull Xinjiang from China's orbit. So I, I think there was always this sort of skepticism of, of, you know, could we really actually either ourselves digest Xinjiang or set it up as a, as a functional government separate from China? There was never a sense that it would be easy to do. He should have learned French. It would make things easier. <laughs> well, he also had a, uh, I think it was his his second cousin, some sort of distant relative in, in London, 
uh, Jakob Beg did, um, who had previously been a, a diplomat from the Kokan Khanate to um, to the the Ottomans in Constantinople. But during uh, Jakob Beg's rebellion, this guy in Constantinople repurposed himself as Jakob Beg's uh, ambassador in London and, and had uh, just as sophisticated relations with the, the British elite at the time. So Jakob Beg seems like sort of a footnote in history. But in fact, at the time, he was taken very seriously by the British and the Russians, but neither one really wanted to a bet on him being the ruler of a of an independent Xinjiang. Um all right, we get a Russian revolution. I didn't see a ton of Lenin in your book, Chris. Um what did he think about all this stuff before we before we jump into the S man? Well, you know, Lenin was only in power for, you know, half a decade at most. Um because he spent the first couple of years trying to consolidate power. They didn't really win the civil war in Russia until 1921 and then he he had a he had health issues kind of immediately thereafter. So Lenin, despite being sort of the figurehead of the Soviet state, you know, really only had a limited uh, chance to put his own um, his, his own image on the Soviet state. And so his own views on, on these issues actually didn't really have have time to be fully developed. But what we what we certainly can say is that although the this early Soviets thought that the revolution was going to happen in uh, the most advanced economies. In fact, you know, there wasn't a revolution in, in France and Britain, and there were a couple of small revolutions that all failed in Germany. And so there was a, by the early 1920s, there was a pretty uh, strong consensus in the Soviet leadership that it was time to look elsewhere for uh, revolutionary movements and and the, the decolonizing world or what Russians, the Soviets hoped would be a decolonizing world um, seemed like a place to start. And so China was a place that had a, uh, a revolutionary movement Movement in the Guomindang, uh, perhaps a different type of revolution, but nevertheless, they used the word too, so it seemed uh, positive. Uh, and the Guomindang was anti-imperialist, kind of, or you could at least make the argument that they were anti-imperialist. So um, if you didn't have to jump through too many ideological hoops to see some similarities between early Soviet Russia was trying to accomplish and what the Guomindang was trying to accomplish. And the other key similarity was that, uh, you know, the Soviets were were governed, in, especially in the early stages, by a, a party that had spent the previous couple decades in conspiracies against empires. And so they were in the conspiracy business. Um, and, it, you know, over time, they, they became more bureaucratic and became in the, bureauc- the bureaucracy business. But in the 20s, they were still in that kind of conspiracy mindset. And so the, the Guomindang in the 20s was also in the conspiracy mindset. So they kind of had a meeting of the minds um, there. And, and so you had, uh, from the early 1920s, Soviet efforts to kind of run guns and uh, illicitly fund uh, various Guomindang activities, uh, including uh, training some of the early armed forces. There might be a parallel between Chiang Kai-shek and Ataturk. In both cases, we have somewhat anti-imperialist revolutionary leader. Soviets are pumping him with money, armaments, and he pretends to be pro-communist for a while, but then absolutely massacres all the communists in his country. So, like, to Ataturk, they sent a delegation of real Turkish communists. He drowned them in the Black Sea. And Chiang Kai-shek did something similar in Shanghai. So, um, it's interesting, wasn't all of this anti-imperialist Soviet struggle more of wishful thinking, I would say, when they are so eager to trigger the world revolution that they wanted, then they were eager to see their comrades in uh, clear nationalists who are not interested in world proletarian revolution at all. Yeah, I, I think that's right. That there was a a, a real sense of irrationality uh, when it comes to Soviet policy towards Chiang Kai-shek. Steve Kotkin in his biography of Stalin has this this great anecdote of after. Chiang Kai-shek massacres all of the communists. There's a big parade in 
I, I believe it was in Moscow, and and they held up pictures of the, the world's great revolutionary leaders. They had Marx, they had Engels, they had Lenin, and they had Chiang Kai Shek. Just <laughs> shortly after he massacred all the communists, uh, and and it was somehow possible to kind of keep that uh, that fiction going for a while until you know by twenty seven, nineteen twenty seven, nineteen twenty eight, it finally becomes a, a bit too obvious that Chiang Kai Shek is into revolution, but his own type of revolution, not the type the, Bol- the Bolsheviks are hoping for. You know, your book, it unraveled one of the real mysteries I had reading Chinese history of Stalin's, you know, relationship to 1930s and even into 1940s, uh, uh, Chinese Communist Party of being very reticent to uh, embrace the potential that the CCP could win and, you know, constantly telling Mao to like chill out, take it slow, don't, you know, don't fight too much, like we're not going to give you all that much, as much money as you want and whatnot. Because, as you argue, uh, the 20s and into the early 30s was like he, he got absolutely burned. So aside from, you know, the the uh, the point we talked about of, um, you know, Chiang Kai-shek killing everyone in, in, in Shanghai, uh, what massive East Asian backfires did Stalin uh, have to uh, stomach in the uh, 20s and into the mid 30s? Well, I think the, the, the big thing was really Manchuria, which was the centerpiece of the czar's. Uh, Pacific Empire, Asian Empire. The Tsars had controlled the railroads and controlled the entire economy uh, of of Manchuria up to the Russo-Japanese War, and even thereafter uh, was a big player. And, and the Soviets basically inherited that from the Tsars uh, and and wanted to keep it, although they also wanted to be anti-imperialist at the same time, and so that was sort of a dilemma. Uh, but the, under Stalin, they did a pretty good job of keeping it. They waged a small war with China in 1929 to keep hold of it. And then as Japanese power began rising in the 1930s, as Japan invaded Manchuria, uh, Russia decided, the Soviet Union decided that it wasn't worth holding on to anymore. And so you had this bizarre, I think, retreat where in the 1920s, there was uh, immense effort poured into uh, China and Manchuria in particular to bolster the Russian position. And then by 1930s, the decision was made, actually, maybe this isn't worth all that much. And so the Soviet Union basically withdrew from Manchuria to the extent that even when it defeated the Japanese militarily at three different occasions in 37, 38, 39, right before the outbreak of of World War II, uh, it decided not to use its military advantage to do anything. It just kept the border basically uh, where it had been. And so I think this was also a big downgrading of Russian imperial ambitions uh, at, at the time as well, from the, the forward policy of the 1920s to a much more cautious policy of the 1930s, which is only, I think, explainable by the fact that Stalin felt burnt by his, his, his over-optimism of the 1920s. Was there some specific event after which Stalin decided to go wholeheartedly on Mao's side, like support him fully? You know, I don't think so. I, I think it really was... If you put yourself in the perspective of, of 1945, everyone thought that that the nationalists would would be the dominant power in in post-war China. That was the Soviet analysis. That was the American analysis. That was the British analysis. Um, the communists would play some sort of role, but no one is expecting Mao to take over. And so I think the Soviets were basically just playing a, a game of hedging their bets. And as it became more and more likely that the communists would actually succeed in taking power. The Soviets put more and more eggs in the baskets of the communists, but they were always playing catch up because everyone was surprised in 45, 46, how quickly uh, the nationalist government began to, to fold and how quickly the, economists, the, the communists began to take territory. 
Um, but you, you have the, this kind of famous incidents where Mao's requesting to come to Moscow in the late 1940s. And the Soviets were saying, actually, you know, why don't you, why don't you keep waiting? We'd rather not have you. So, so Mao had uh, a new pair of shoes, leather shoes rather than cloth shoes made for his journey and also a new coat. Uh, so he'd be very fashionable on the train uh, to Moscow. But sadly, the, the trip was uh, postponed by uh, the Soviet leadership who thought it was too soon for a visit uh, dis- despite Mao's new set of clothes. But I, I think the, the the point of all this is to say that the Soviets didn't have a grand plan to to back Mao. They were just following events uh, at kind of after they were happening, and so that they were updating their their the likelihood that Mao would win. And as it became more and more likely that Mao's forces would win, they became more and more willing to bet on the winning horse. So you would say it was not so much a Soviet bet on Mao as just the weakness of Kuomintang. I think it was, it was a. It was a mix of both. I mean, certainly the, the the Soviets were open to Mao winning from the from the immediate post-war period. They weren't opposed to that by any means. Um, but nor did they think it was the most likely outcome. So they weren't going to put all of their bets on the on the communists winning. They they presumed that the nationalists would hold on, and so that they had to, as a result, have decent ties with the nationalists. It's interesting. I read, I believe, another book that Mao was actually proposing to divide. China between himself and Chiang Kai-shek. Like the north Where would the dividing Mao, line have been? The, the north to Mao and the south to Kuomintang. And that would be interesting if really Beifang and Nanfang, for the first time in God knows how many years, would become politically separate. Well, you know, it's, it's funny. I, I think from the perspective of today, that sounds absurd. I was struck by reading documents from the early 1920s, the extent to which South China was treated as every, by everyone, Chinese and foreigners alike, as a a sort of politically distinct unit within China, uh, and such that you could you could talk about South Chinese politics as as being a, a kind of a self contained unit, which today I, I don't think computes in any sort of meaningful way. But in the there was a period in the early 1920s where South China really was seen to have its own political dynamics. Yeah, it's interesting. You know um, about the thing about Taiping Rebellion, which basically was triggered by Feng Xuchuang failing to pass imperial exams. Was that, as far as I understand, thousands? had far less chance to pass them because the quarters on the south were less. So if this assumption is true, it seems there was some systematic discrimination of southern Chinese in imperial China. Uh, because if you look on what happened in China after the Xinhai Revolution, uh, like in Hubei, what they're doing, they're overthrowing their northerner governor and then sending the forces to Hebei to do the same. So many of these provinces, they're systematically run by northerners. So I don't really understand Southern Chinese politics back then. I don't understand their rhetorics. But I think there was some feeling that uh, Nanfang is somewhat um, of Beifang. Well, particularly for the Qing Empire, right? I mean, they don't care about these Han folks. Yeah, and by the by the early 20th century as well, you've got the economic dynamics are also you know quite different in at least the coastal regions versus inland. Um, you look at at the, the coast of southern China, which is becoming more and more integrated into the global economy, trading with Southeast Asia very extensively. So there's, there's an economic basis, too, I think, for the, the divergence. So let's come back to Xinjiang. Um, how did Stalin, uh, you know, end up uh, settling that with Mao? Well, you know, Xinjiang was, for the 1920s and 30s, you know, really a, run completely autonomously from uh, from the rest of China. So the the warlords who were in charge had almost absolute control to the extent that they would sign trade deals with uh, the Soviet government and then notify Beijing uh, months later that they'd signed trade deals. So this was about as close to independence as, 
as you could get without, of course, uh, declaring it. Uh, and and this independence was in some ways logical because by the early 20th century, there were a lot deeper ties uh, between uh, the territory of Xinjiang and, and Soviet Central Asia than there were with the rest of China. By the 1920s and 30s, something like 90% of Xinjiang's trade went to the Soviet Union and only 10% to the rest of China, um, which is an extraordinary uh, disbalance. But it was, you know, it was a lot easier to get to the, the countries of or the, the Soviet republics of Central Asia than it was, was elsewhere. And throughout most of the earliest 20th century, you had a series of uh, rebellions in places like Gansu and Qinghai, which obstructed uh, communication with the rest of China. So there was a, a real sense of autonomy that uh, pervaded Xinjiang in, in the first half of the 20th century, and the Soviets did everything they could to encourage this. And in the 1930s, this involved even uh, stationing Soviet military forces in Xinjiang, uh, using them to intervene in the territory's civil war on behalf of the provincial governor. And for uh, almost a decade, the Soviets had uh, a really substantial garrison um, uh, outside of the city of Hami, uh, which is on the main road from from central China to Xinjiang. They had, uh, uh, I think it was 10 or 15 uh, airplanes stationed there, a bunch of tanks, several thousand troops. So this was a really substantial garrison in you know, smack dab in the center of China, more or less, uh, which was there for several years. And it was there with the consent of the Xinjiang government. Uh, no one uh, cared to ask the central government whether they wanted uh, Soviet forces in there. But what's interesting is that Stalin never decided to do anything more. He he almost certainly could have if he wanted to try to take the entire territory or at least detach it formally from China uh, and, and decided not to do that. Um, and so as a result, when uh, World War II finally came to the Soviet Union and the Soviet Union pulled all of its forces out of China to, the, to fight in the front with the Nazis, uh, Xinjiang regained its, its autonomy from Russia and began falling under control of, of, of Beijing again. You know, another sociological implication of your book I liked. Today we are talking a lot about tech bros. You know, all these smart autistic guys from like Amazon, Facebook, Google, who have huge disproportionate uh, influence on, well, everything in our society, globally. And it seems that back then there was a strata that had somewhat similar influence. Now we have tech bros. Back then we had railroad bros. Like I, I think that, Camille, I think that is 100% right. Railroad Bros is a book that ought to be written. Um, but, but I think there's something serious behind that, which is that uh, railroads brought out um, and, and, and made necessary a, a new forms of corporate organization. You had to make sure the trains ran on time, which means you had to make sure you had schedules and you had um, complex uh, accounting of, of which train car is going where. And so it, 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 it made necessary a new focus on bureaucracy which was crucial to running the railroads. And then it became clear could also be applied to running a government. And so, you know, we have the character in, in the Russian case of Count Vita, who, uh, who came of age managing the railroads in, in the Southern Russian empire, uh, and then became the finance minister. And then, uh, kind of the prime minister of, of Russia and his, his great skill was managing bureaucracies, which he'd learned, uh, by managing the railroad. And, and before him, um, you know, I think you could really argue that the Russian government wasn't really a, a, a sort of functional bureaucracy. It was sort of a, a set of fiefdoms, which were only kind of loosely strung together. And it was Vita who, who really brought them all under his own personal control, in part because he was such a skilled bureaucrat, which we don't think of today as being a, a talent that one would necessarily want to uh, cultivate. But in the 19th century, it was actually a, a new innovation, a new management style. Uh, you know, it's crucially important that the Far East and Siberia was a place of Russian dream, like 
America for Western Europeans, Siberia for Russians. And that's and there is one story I like especially. In 18th century, in Russia, there was some guy who was doing highway robbers. So after some time he got caught, they beat him with a whip, they tore off his nose with hot iron, and they sent him to a small Siberian town to spend a life in exile. But the point is, in that small Siberian town, he was the only literate man. He was the only one who could read and write. That's why he was appointed as a judge. And as Chronicles wrote, he was ravaging the town like an absolute beast. That's a great story, especially today with all this academic elite overproduction, where you have hundreds of degrees and you can't get a stable job. And back then, Siberia was a place of Russian dream. You can always be a judge in Siberia. That's good to know. <laughs> Chris, Chris, I want to talk about the USSR-India-China triangle which is not one which gets a lot of play in the 21st century, but definitely had its moment. How did uh, Soviet leaders think about attempting to, to stitch those three countries together? And why did it not come off in the way that, you know, Gorbachev, for instance, uh, had hoped? If you rewind the clock back even even further, Jordan, to the, the immediate post-war period, 1945, after Indian independence in 1947, uh, the establishment of the PRC in 49, there was a moment then too, where it seemed like the USSR, the PRC and India would um, be important voices in, uh, in in pushing back against uh, Western powers. Uh, and that quickly turned out not to be the case because of the the disputes between India and, and China. But again, in the 1980s, after the Soviets and the Chinese began to uh, resolve some of their border disputes and tone down the ideological conflicts that had marked the Cold War. Uh, Gorbachev, in particular, tried to uh, see if he could get the the Chinese and the Indians to work together with Russia on issues of international politics again as a way of establishing a counterweight to um, to the U.S. and and America's Western allies. Uh, and and from the Russian perspective, this made a lot of sense because they they hoped the three powers could agree on Eurasian politics, could agree on a a more multipolar international world. Um, but the the challenge was always what was the substance of this uh, this these three countries going to actually look like, and and could they focus on whatever substance they found rather than on the issues that divided them and the. Indian uh, Chinese uh, conflict was always uh, extraordinarily difficult to get over. Not only the the specific border conflicts, which obviously are, are back in the news nowadays, but also the question of status: whether uh, India and China would see themselves as equals, or whether China would see itself as a, a notch above, given its nuclear capabilities, uh, which at the time India didn't have, and um, and just the general perception that China was a a, a more sizable power. And so the, the Russian effort to to maneuver India and China into this Eurasian alliance uh, of sorts uh, was was disappointed in the 1980s, but that dream never really died. And today, there are a lot of people in Moscow who um, would like to try to resuscitate uh, that type of uh, India-China-Russia entente. Again, I think that the, the key problem is the India-China relationship doesn't make it possible in India, although it's very happy to have good ties with Russia, and it still does have quite good ties with Russia. It doesn't want to see itself at all as part of a grouping with China, especially a grouping where it would be a, a, a potentially a second-tier player. You know, uh, for the past year, I have been I have been talking a little bit with Russian officials, mostly um, from the economic policy making, like not political but um, economic bosses. And what is interesting, one thing that makes them suddenly very enthusiastic, very tired, very bored, and honestly speaking, not willing to speak with you anymore, 
is when you talk about Chinese investments. Why? Because for political reasons, China tells a lot um, to Russians about potential investments it will make. And maybe political leadership, so people who are really like higher-ups, they don't care about this really because they are more about political friendship, political alliance. But people who do and organize economic policy, I think they are very angry. They are very angry because it seems to me they feel they are cheated. They feel they are taking for fools. To put it simply, China pretends it will give us money, but it doesn't. So there is a lot of um, disappointment. Well, it's interesting. For for a long time, I think the the debate was was not would China invest, but would Russia let China invest in in, in key sectors like energy, where there were perceptions that uh, Russia would, wanted to make sure that the key investors in energy, for example, were 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 Russian, and so there was some amount of state confidence that it could have control over those assets. But now it seems like the, the tables have turned and, and the question, if, if you're right, Camille, is, is why hasn't there been enough investment or why haven't the promises actually been, been met? Uh, yes. And uh, the balance of power is clearly changing. You know, there is Huawei office in Moscow and there are some regional offices in other like big cities. So, but um, in some of these offices, there are no Chinese overseers. So there are Russian managers, but no one from real Chinese leadership, no real Chinese executives. So Chinese executives from Moscow, they're coming to the city like to make, um, like to check how it's going. And of course, local managers don't like it at all, but they can't just tell Chinese to fuck off because they're their superiors. So what they do, they pay local police just to come and harass these Chinese in hotel, check their documents, taking them to police station uh, to determining their identity. And that makes total sense because um, police would never do this with Germans or Swedes uh, because, you know, like these Western Europeans, they're unharassable. They could do this, but only if given like complete order from Moscow. But Asian people, basically anyone who doesn't look European, they're legitimate prey for police, Uh, you know, to check the documents, to extort money if you don't look Nordic. So um, at this point, it's one of problems for Chinese in Russia, yeah. All right, Gorbachev, uh, you had a fantastic chapter in your past book, Chris, looking at how he and some of his reformer friends were really inspired by what Deng Xiaoping was doing. Um, what other, you know, what other wrinkles did you uh, unfurl in, in, in this piece of research, which, which helped inform uh, your thinking on how uh, Gorbachev looked east? Yeah, I, I think the, the the surprising thing that emerged um, from from this is is you know we think of Gorbachev as a Westernizer, as someone who played a key role in in the tearing down of the Berlin Wall, which is which is all true. But uh, when you actually look at where he spent his time, uh, he spent a lot of time thinking about Asia, uh, and this was pretty sensible because when he first took power in 1985, relations between the Soviet Union and China were horrible. And there was a real need and a consensus that emerged in Moscow that it was time to improve relations and uh, stop stop the kind of uh, name calling back and forth between Moscow and Beijing about who was the worst revisionist, that type of thing. And so there was a real effort given to making Russia a, a relevant player in Asia. And step one was seen to as be uh, a need to improve relations with uh, China. But then step two was a whole other set of relationships that the Soviet Union had more or less ignored. So Japan, which had been seen as kind of a Cold War rival, uh, Gorbachev made a real effort uh, for a time to resolve the territorial issue with uh, Japan, the, 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 the islands that were disputed after World War 
um, two with Korea, uh, which of course Russia didn't have any diplomatic relations with until the end of the Cold War, uh, which you know today I think we often uh, forget about. But when you actually look at the map of Asia and 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 rewind to 1985, it you know it's pretty clear that Russia didn't have the Soviet Union at the time didn't have very many functional relationships at all in Asia. The relationship with China was non-functional. With uh, South Korea was non-existent. North Korea obviously its own uh, strange. Um, dynamic. And so Gorbachev said, we need to find a way to revitalize this. And he he tried hard to do so. He opened relations with South Korea, for example, and he started a dialogue with Japan. But really the only major success, I would say, was uh, in restarting the relationship with China and in visiting Beijing, uh, which he did in May 1989. Uh, pretty dramatic visit, if uh, folks will recall, this happened during Tiananmen. Uh, I did find it really interesting where like Sakharov and lots of other you know, left-leaning folks were calling on Gorbachev to actually criticize Deng for what he did in Tiananmen Square, but he was, uh, you know, very adamant that he would hold the line and 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 not um uh, uh, and not make the sort of statements that were coming out of Western capitals. Yeah, and if you if you think about it from today, I think it's easy to sort of read Gorbachev as just being sort of a realist, saying, "Well, you know, it's too bad, but we need to kind of keep focused on our relationship with the Chinese government." But I think it's even more complicated than that because in in 1989, right after Tiananmen, Gorbachev was facing his own domestic discontent, which was rising. You started to have the early independence movements from some of the Soviet republics. And and so it seems pretty clear that uh, no one in Moscow would have ruled out the possibility of a Tiananmen-style application of violence by the central government. Uh, not that that was ever on Gorbachev's mind as something he wanted to do, but I think it's also something that people didn't think was impossible. When you when you read the Russian debate at the time about Tiananmen, there already were figures, especially in the far right, saying, uh, you know, we, we respect the, um, the resolute decision by the Communist Party leaders in China to defend their um, to defend their national sovereignty against um, against the, the protesters. And certainly when you look at figures on the far right, like Alexander Pranov, um, who's a kind of a, a major far right thinker in Russia, um, they're already looking at Tiananmen right afterwards saying, hey, this is something we can learn from um, in, in terms of the willingness to, to stand up for the state's interests. Well, that's pretty nauseating. So maybe Deng Xiaoping just wanted to give Gorbachev a hint? I think there's, there certainly was a sense that uh, already the in China, the, the interpretation was solidifying that Gorbachev was too weak, too soft. And sort of the, the, the sort of Xi Jinping gloss on Gorbachev, which is that you know, she has this great speech where he says, no one was a man. That's, that's his phrase. No one was a man. No one came out to resist when the, the Soviet Party, Communist Party was collapsing. And I think already under Deng um, and, and the elite in the party at the time, there was a sense that that, that was the problem in, in the Soviet Union. That Gorbachev just wasn't willing to stamp out the threats. Is it really important for debates, for identity, uh, for policy of Chinese Communist Party? Is it really important? to avoid the fate of Soviet Union, of the Communist Party of Soviet Union? Like how far, how often, how frequently this idea is even... Well, I, I had the great opportunity to participate in a, a conference in China in 2017 on the 100th anniversary of the Russian Revolution, which I thought was a, a fascinating discussion because, of course, the Russian Revolution was a formative event in the history of Marxism-Leninism, but, you know, it didn't end up, end up the way that... Um, that 
China would like in terms of the collapse of the Soviet Union. And so I think there is an interesting ideological dance that one has to play around the collapse of the Union. You have to find something to blame it on that's not inherent in in the ideals that were in the system in the first place. Um, and I think the concept of color revolutions has been an easy thing to sort of describe as, as, as causing the collapse of the Soviet Union. That sort of fits with Russian discourse, too. You've got external forces, you've got nationalist sentiment, and you put them together, and you can kind of tell an external story that doesn't implicate the, the core of the system. You know Chadai, a Russian philosopher, he wrote that Russia probably exists to give some lesson to the world, to serve as example some idea. So maybe that was the purpose of Soviet collapse, to give Chinese an idea how to preserve the empire well, I think that the Chinese Communist Party has certainly learned the lesson. Whether the right lesson or not, I'm not sure. They've learned a lesson. Um, I want to close with Afghanistan. How does the story of Russia's involvement with Afghanistan uh, relate to your thesis and, I guess, echo today? You know, the, the I think the really crazy thing about the Soviet intervention in Afghanistan is the extent to which we've now got, and this is not my research, this is the research of other historians, got pretty good sources that show that the decision to intervene was made by a really small number of people, just a handful, uh, and that most of the rest of the Soviet leadership was sort of at best surprised and at worst horrified with the decision as it was taking place. So it was seen at the time to be something that probably wasn't a good idea. And the fact that it lasted for so long was something that I don't think was endorsed by most of the Soviet elite either. And so in some ways, I think it's the easiest explanation for the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan is that it was sort of a an error that was only made possible by the fact that decision-making was um, so vague, but but held in the hands of a small number of people who didn't even have a formal decision-making process. Uh, and, and I think I, I would sort of put that personalized explanation for the intervention um, close to the kind of close to the center of, of any explanation. What, what does it mean in the long run? I mean, I, I guess we've been hearing a lot about the graveyard of empires and, and stuff like that the past couple of days, but that's probably, I think, the wrong um, framework to look at it because when you sort of zoom out past, you know, the 1980s and 1990s and and put Afghanistan in the you know past 200 years of, of history, I think it does take on a, um, a much different hue rather than just sort of the, the easy role it plays in, you know, our, our morality tales about how it led to the collapse of the Soviet Union is leading to the collapse of the American empire today. I think that's probably not the most, um, not the right lesson to draw. How about some speculations? Do you believe Afghanistan will become China's Saudi Arabia? See, I think that if you, if you, if you look at the history of, of various empires' efforts to uh, use Afghanistan for their own purposes, the track record of success is, is, is limited, I would say. Greatly. Remember Babur Namek, when Afghans were... Tamerlane, baby. You have to rewind the clock a long way. Yeah, you got to go back to the 1400s to (laughs) to have it work out for you. I don't know. My my, my take on that, Camille, is like, I think, you know, speaking about learning lessons from the Soviet Empire, right, of modern day, she, like, there are plenty of places where if she wants to kind of play in his near abroad, he can, that are much more sort of hospitable or much more promising than, like, some mountains of rare earths, I guess. And, you know, if he needed any extra sort of underlining of the pain and challenge that would come in in deepening engagement with Afghanistan, I think the the airport bombing of uh, last week is, is enough for you know, to scare the, um, uh, the the wits off of any sort of mid-level Chinese official who's writing out some sort of plan for a great, you know, Obor 2.0 into, um, uh, 
Kandahar province or, or whatnot. It's just the, you know, the, the, the cost benefit ana- analysis for Beijing just does not seem to be there at all for a real effort to, to, to deeply engage with Afghanistan, particularly the Taliban run Afghanistan. It okay. seems to me that the basic difference between, let's say, Chinese economic imperialism and the one of the West or almost non-existent that of Russia is that the Westerners or Russians, if they do some development project abroad, they wouldn't fucking shut up about it. They would be constantly advertising it, non-stop, 24 hours, seven days a week. Meanwhile, Chinese, they're doing huge infrastructure projects in very inhospitable regions like Belugistan or stuff, and don't advertise this at all. So you just see, like, some plants being constructed in, like, Pakistan's zone of stripes or stuff, and they're doing it in very adverse, very bad conditions, with the workers carrying weapons, because they are expecting an attack from tribesmen any day, and they don't advertise it. That's really interesting. I would even say that it looks like China is a state, a modern state in postmodern world. Ooh, looking, for, looking forward to that column, Camille. Chris and Camille, thanks so much for being a part of China Talk. Thanks, Jordan. This is fun. Yeah, thank you, Jordan. Границы тучи ходят хмуро, Край суровый тишиной объят. У высоких берегов Амура Часовые родины стоят. Там врагу сослон поставлен прочный, там стоит отваженный селен, У границы мидальной восточной, Броневой ударный батальон, У границы мидальной восточной, Броневой ударный батальон, Там живут и песня в том порукой. Нерушимой дружною семьей Три танкиста, три веселых друга Экипаж машины боевой На траву легла роса густая Полегли туманы широки в эту ночь решили самураи перейти границу реки. В эту ночь решили самураи перейти границу реки. Но разведка доложила точно и пошел командою светом по родной земле дальневосточной. Понимай, ударный батальон. Мчались танки, ветер поднимая, Наступала грозная броня, И летели на земь самураи, Под напором стали огня.
и добили песня в дом порука Всех врагов в атаке огневой Три танкиста, три веселых друга Экипаж машины боевой Три танкиста, три веселых друга Экипаж машины 